Can Billionaires Save the World? Anand Jaraharadas will be here to discuss his new book, Winners Take All. Should a mother be arrested for leaving a child briefly in the backseat of a car? Kim Brooks will join us to talk about small animals, parenthood in the age of fear. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Anand Jaraharadas joins us now. He is the author of The True American and India Calling, and his latest book, reviewed on our cover this week, is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the obvious question. Who are the winners? The winners are the global plutocratic superclass that is on the, the happy end of an age of extreme inequality and many of whom have realized that they are living in an age not only of extreme inequality, but also of unsustainable anger and social dislocation and political chaos, and have tried to do something about it. And my book is about what they have tried to do, which is essentially to, quote unquote, change the world and make a difference on some of these issues in ways that preserve the social structure that keeps them on top. Before we go into exactly who they are, because I want names, do they perceive in general, or perhaps some of them, that they might be responsible for some of that extreme anger? Or do they see it as a kind of separate problem, but one that perhaps they should help out with? There's a spectrum. So there are some people who are kind of unreconstructed winners of, of our age of what I call market fundamentalism, who have done very well, who think this system is flawless and who are happy with the idea of, you know, throwing scraps to the poor and the left out or telling them to pull themselves up. However, I actually found somewhat to my surprise, a large number of people in this class of plutocrats who realize something's going wrong. The election of Donald Trump certainly helped many of them with that realization. But look, there's been there's been gathering evidence, whether you go back to, you know, the WTO protests 19 years ago through Occupy, through any mm-hmm. number of other things, through all those people buying the Piketty book and not reading it, all these indicators that there was anger, there was a sense that the world was not working for people the way people were rich explaining to them that it was working. And so those who are kind of a little more woke within that plutocratic class, I think, realize that the system that has benefited them and helped them win needs to be changed. And I think in some ways they've gotten out ahead of the desire to change it by proposing remedies. But the remedies they propose tend to have a few things in common. They tend to avoid doing things democratically, where those people just have one vote instead of a lot of votes. They tend to favor the private sector that made those people their money as the method of solving the problems. They tend to insist that you know the solutions be win-wins. What that results in is change that doesn't necessarily change anything and making a difference in ways that actually help them continue making a killing and giving back in ways that kind of sustain their opportunity to keep taking. There's so much in there, but I want to get to something that you said towards the beginning of that, which is that many of these winners recognize that the system benefits them. To what extent do they recognize that they are also perpetuating that system and that in some cases they may have helped create that system. 
One of the guys I write about is a is a man named Sean Hinton who works for George Soros and his foundations. And Sean used to work for McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and now is in charge of a program run by Soros to to essentially create more inclusive egalitarian economies around the world. We should say that you also you also worked for McKinsey. I did. Yeah. I was probably the least successful McKinsey consultant <laughs> ever. I'm not sure if I'm remembered there and probably not remembered well. And and will be remembered worse now. The, the, the fact that someone who worked at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and worked specifically in the mining industry in Mongolia, advising Goldman Sachs on how to you know, deal with the mines in Mongolia and presumably help rich people make the killing. You know, Sean is one of the woke ones and Sean calls it the trying to solve the problem with the tools that caused it issue. But someone like Sean struggles with it because on one hand, he understands the irony that someone who was part of institutions like Goldman Sachs, which are architects and which lobby for the very systems that have perpetuated extreme inequality are now turning around and, and, being put in charge of a program to think about how to spread equality. On the other hand, Sean is a smart guy. And Sean also, you know, there's this idea of people kind of knowing where the bodies are buried. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that maybe people like this, because they understand how it was built, can tear it down. But I think that idea takes you to a Donald Trump kind of place, which is, you know, I can negotiate a better deal with China because I used to make things in China. There's this idea that that has spread among even the woker sections of the global plutocratic superclass that the arsonists may in fact make the best firefighters. And I see kernels of truth in that, but I think it's a deeply problematic notion. And what it ends up with are solutions that continue to deliver kickbacks to the winners. We now live in a world in which social change, if it's not a win-win, if it doesn't essentially kick something back to the winners, it's deemed radical and vague and strange. Right. When you have politicians in the Democratic Party who propose ideas that essentially involve making the U.S. no longer the only rich country not to do X, Y, or Z, they are dismissed out of hand as foolish. And part of how they're dismissed is because there are these alternatives favored and pushed by plutocrats that seem so much kindler and gentler and easier and not requiring so much money. And so that's the way in which this helpfulness can actually be counterproductive. It's not just that it's a drop in the bucket. One of the arguments of the book is it's not just that it's not enough. This helpfulness actively staves off real change. The American people put Donald Trump into office in large part because they felt that someone who had done as he had done in the world of business could do the same thing in government. People now look at at figures like Jeff Bezos, perhaps Mark Zuckerberg, certainly Bill Gates and say, well, we have faith in you. You made all of this money. You understand the system to now figure out these larger problems in the world. And I guess I wonder, like, where does that come from? Is that just deep rooted in American history? Does that go back to, you know, Andrew Carnegie and, and, and the Gilded Age and all of these, the quote unquote robber barons of that era, then sort of turning around and becoming philanthropists? I think it does. I think Carnegie laid the groundwork for the idea that the best way to get the best society is for business people to be ruthless in phase one and do whatever they need to do and degrade workers if need be and not pay them a living wage if need be. And then once they reap all the you know outsized profits from that ruthlessness, 
give back, build libraries, take care of things. So there you have a kind of founding vision of extreme taking followed by extreme giving as as the good life. Uh, and an idea that things like libraries and other public work should be should be, you know, thrown down to us from the commanding heights of capitalism. But in more recent years, I think your point about Trump is so important because I think, you know, something that many listeners of this podcast may not like to hear is that I think a lot of well-meaning liberals laid the groundwork, the intellectual groundwork for Trumpism. And here's and here's what I mean by that. When you hear Trump say a lot of the things he says that justify why someone like him of his background should be in charge, he actually did not come up with a lot of that those ideas on his own. Those ideas actually, if you trace them, have origins in this plutocratic superclass that I write about. And most of the people I write about are the well-meaning people trying to change the world. And I think most of them probably vote for Democrats. And so let's just go through some of the ideas that that these people actually pioneered. So when Trump says, you know, when Trump kind of acts in a way where he can fight for the common man while promoting his own businesses and enriching himself, that is the win-win, which is what all of these, you know, plutocrats have been saying for all these years. They can help poor people while winning themselves, right? When he says, only I can fix it, that idea again, is this idea of you know what's often called effectiveness. And then the, the, the private sector people, business people, have special skills to solve all problems. You often hear this thing about, you know, Coca-Cola is much more widely available in Africa than, than condoms because governments give out condoms and Coca-Cola is, you know, is a, is a private company that you know, only they can do it. When he talks about only people who've kind of made stuff in Mexico and China can prevent things from being made in Mexico and China, this is the idea of, the people who've caused the problems are actually the, the best solvers, the arsonists are the best firefighters. When he talks about, you know, the best way to solve problems is, is kind of extra democratically as he continues to challenge every democratic norm we have. Again, he is building, he's standing on the shoulders of a lot of well-meaning liberals who in a gentle way have been degrading the idea of solving problems governmentally, have been pushing the idea that, you know, government is bloated and tired and inefficient, you know, all of which are true. And therefore, let's let Mark Zuckerberg do the schools and we'll let, you know, Bill Gates, you know, handle foreign aid and we'll let Jeff Bezos deal with space. And we've been outsourcing the ability to make change to billionaires. And slowly, all these ideas, the win-win, the only I can fix it, the idea that the sinners can redeem themselves through solving the problems they caused, all these ideas laid track for Trump. And I think you don't get a Donald Trump without all of us being complicit. You don't get a Donald Trump without 48 system failures that were uncorrelated and all happened at the same time. And I think, I hope this book will be an invitation for people to look within at all of our role in perpetuating narratives and a culture that told us that we actually couldn't solve problems democratically within the conventional American tradition. And Donald Trump exposed a plutocratic superclass that didn't really care about regular people as much as it pretended to. And then he exploited the anger about that class. And then he, of course, came to embody it. He is, as I say in the book, the reductio ad absurdum of a culture that asks billionaires 
to be revolutionary. Well, it's isn't it in a way a combination of a kind of liberal slash libertarian, very much Silicon Valley philosophy of, you know, that, that the private sector can always do it better, that combines together with this anti-government streak dating back to Goldwater and then through Reagan that the public sector, as you said, is always bloated, that they can't. And this sort of marriage of these two things on the left and the right. Exactly. That's exactly right. One way I tell the story is I think you had an assertive, proactive anti-government movement on the right. Goldwater, Reagan, et cetera. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Margaret Thatcher saying, you know, there's no such thing as society families should look only to themselves, right? See, that was an explicit movement of people who wanted to shrink and degrade government for the purpose of allowing much more of a society's action to happen in the private sector. But I think that's not the full story. I think the full story has to involve what happened on the other half of the political equation, which is that the left half in many parts of the world essentially adopted almost as secondhand smoke this kind of contempt for government. Mm-hmm. And, it or, and also reverence, really, for the private sector, reverence correct. for the entrepreneurs, for the Silicon Valley titans. And so you have someone like Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over, mm-hmm. which is kind of an extraordinary thing to say if you are the, you know, liberal, if you're a liberal elected to government out of the traditional workers' party. You have people like Tony Blair coming into power on a similar message. You have Barack Obama who ran on a more progressive platform coming into office. And one of the first new offices he creates in the White House, one of the only new offices he creates is the Office of Social Innovation, which I write about in the book, you know, whose founding charter basically says we must accept we live in an era in which top-down programs from Washington aren't how you make change anymore. They really? I mean, mm-hmm. they did a pretty good job of getting women to vote and getting civil rights and getting an interstate highway and setting a minimum wage and having children not work anymore. And, you know, uh, I don't know, top-down government programs have kind of built America. I mean, I've been to a lot of places in the world without very strong or, or effective top-down government programs, and they're, they're pretty rough places. The idea that even liberals have sort of imbibed this notion is quite interesting. And one of the people I, I spent time with for the book is Bill Clinton himself, because I think Bill Clinton, more than any person on this planet, embodies the evolution that I'm writing about. In 1964, who believed more than Bill Clinton, young Bill Clinton at Georgetown, in the idea of changing the world through politics, right? This guy saw what was happening around him, saw Lyndon Johnson, saw these big programs, and felt inspired and decided to bet his life on it and became an extraordinary, you know, went to law school, became this extraordinary voice for the idea that you could make people's lives better through political action, Mm -hmm. through organizing people and passing laws and doing all those things. And fast forward to today, and Bill Clinton in his post-presidency has done a tremendous amount of good through his Clinton Foundation and Clinton Global Initiative. But he has done the kind of good that I write about in the book, which is basically the kind of good that is run by plutocrats. They give to him, they are in the driver's seat of a lot of these programs. And as a result, they have a veto over forms of change that don't favor them. So you don't have the Clinton Foundation going after tax havens because, you know, that's not the kind of issue their donors are going to get on board with. And I put that to him and we had a bit of an argument about it. And there was this extraordinary moment where I said, okay, let's take an extreme case, whether you think this is a good case for government action. 
soft drink companies that use their political power to get vending machines into schools and, you know, fatten kids and help contribute to, you know, juvenile diabetes and things like that. And you say, is that a case where you could imagine strong government action? Because that's an issue he worked on. And he said, no, you know, he said, you got to make sure those companies have a, have a business model at the end of that change. And so the better way is to work with them and collaboratively and shrink the cans a little bit. And I worked with them and they helped the kids, but they also still had a business model. And I sat there in his office staring at the man who once led the most powerful machinery of state in the history of civilization, thinking what an extraordinary cultural moment that on this issue, which to me is as open and shut an issue, a case for government as you could ever find, which is companies that are extremely rich and well-connected and lobby are using their power to sell products to children. The The products have no redeeming health value. The children have no ability to vote or organize to do anything about it. They have no power. So power must be exerted on their behalf. And when you put it to a man who used to lead the United States government, why don't you use your power to to call for a movement, pass a law, organize? No, he felt it was the bottom line was those companies still have to have a business model. We got to take care of them first. And that captures the ideology of the age, as well as anything I found along the journey. So you go from these large government programs and policies, things like the New Deal, the Civil Rights Acts, the Great Society, to this kind of private sector version, which is things like social impact investing and philanthrocapitalism and market-driven solutions and sustainable capitalism. And all those are buzzwords that are thrown around now. Is there anything good to them? Is there anything that they do that those big government programs couldn't do? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's many, many, many types of problems that at the margin are solved well by some of these initiatives. The problem is looking at it at the margin is not good enough because a lot of these projects solve a real problem and do some real good while also contributing to shoring up a bad system often the system that is causing those problems. And so I am not of the view that, you know, none of this elite helpfulness is helping. It it often helps a lot. I'm of the view that the help is often an accomplice to a far greater hurt. And what we'd be better off having is, for example, in the case of this guy, Bernie Marcus, who who co-founded Home Depot, Bernie Marcus is a big philanthropist in Atlanta and gives a lot of money away and talks about how he gives money away. I am certain that the money he gives away helps people. I I would never claim that it doesn't. I'm sure that if you are a poor person, a person who's struggling in any of the number of ways that he helps, I'm sure getting a check from him or getting your organization that helps you get a grant from him is great. But Bernie Marcus, while he was at Home Depot, fought tooth and nail to avoid paying people who work at Home Depot a living wage. And so my concern is not that that kind of giving doesn't help anybody. My concern is that he's trying to buy a papal indulgence that doesn't really cover the costs of what he might have done. And that if he had instead, you know, paid people a living wage at Home Depot or perhaps not lobbied against the federal government doing that, not tried to overrule the public interest using lobbyists, millions of people might have been benefited in a way that, you know, maybe only thousands are benefiting now from his do-gooding. 
So much to think about here, and there's a lot more in the book. The book, again, is called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand Jarhardis is the author. Anand, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Kim Brooks joins us now from Chicago. Her book is called Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was excerpted in the Sunday Review section of the New York Times. And I think the headline was Motherhood in the Age of Fear. And it just got this huge response. Summarize for us what you were talking about in that piece. And then I'd love to hear what you heard back directly from readers. So in the, the piece, I was talking about the story, which is the central narrative in, in my book, which involves something that happened to me about six years ago at this point. It began when I allowed my son to wait in the car for a few minutes while I ran into a store in the suburbs to get one item. When I came back, he was fine. It was a cool day. The windows were open. And I returned home to Chicago that evening and then later found out that someone had observed me, had watched me doing this, had recorded me on their phone and had called the police who then arrived on the scene after I had left and that the police now wanted to charge me with a crime for allowing him to wait in the car. And what is the crime? Is it like reckless endangerment? What's the crime? Well, that's a really good question. It's hard to say, you know, because many states, and Virginia was one of them, don't have specific laws on the books mm-hmm. about how long it's acceptable to leave children unsupervised or what age. And so a lot of it comes down to sort of just the discretion of the police or, you know, whether or not someone who sees it thinks that you're putting your children in danger. Utah, I think, was the first state a few months ago to pass a specific law saying that parents cannot be charged with a crime for, you know, giving their children reasonable amounts of freedom and independence. But many states don't really have specific legislation. And so, you know, I wasn't sure for a long time past, almost a year before I even knew if I was going to be charged with something. I didn't know what the charge would be. I found out as I began researching it that some women, for example, some, there was one woman, an African-American woman very close to where this happened to me in Virginia, who was did something very similar, ran into a, a gas station to buy some candy with, you know, while her kids waited in the evening, it pulled right up front, and she was charged with felony child neglect. Hmm. That would sort of be the worst possibility. I ended up being charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor, which was sort of surprising. You know, that's, I feel like, what a lot of people assume that means you've, like, bought beer for a minor <laughs> or something like that. But the the idea of the charge was that... If you render a minor in need of services, right, then that's, you can be charged with that. And so as my lawyer would later explain to me, the idea is that I left my child there for a few minutes 
And so if he had had to be taken into social services, then, then I'd rendered him in need of services. And of course I said, but I didn't leave him there. I came back after five minutes. He didn't need anything. He was fine. But at that point, you know, that, that didn't really matter. The charge had been pressed. What was your reaction at the time? Mostly shock and fear and I think shame. You know, I think that I was a new mother. This was my, my son was four at the time. My daughter was 18 months. I think like a lot of people I know, other mothers, my friends, like I had a lot of anxiety. I was constantly wondering like, do I know how to do this? Am I good at this? Am I making the right choices? And then to have something like this happen where someone you don't know basically says, not only do I not think you're being a good mother, but you're doing something criminal, you know, criminally negligent with mm-hmm. your child. I mean, it, it, was, I was, it was pretty upsetting. And I, at, at first, I really didn't know. You know, I, I wondered how, if I had done something wrong. In the back of my mind, I think I was thinking that this was where I grew up and I had so many memories of waiting in the car when my own parents ran errands. And so I didn't know like, well, what had changed in the course of just you know, 30 years. And that was sort of one of the seeds for the book was wanting to figure out what had changed, whether it was in fact the world or if it was just us, our, our notions of childhood and safety. Did part of you think, well, surely this will just be dropped right away once I explain, you know, show them I'm a good parent and I'm a, you know, contributing citizen and my kids are well cared for and, and this will just go away? Yeah, I mean, and in some ways that is what happened because I, you know, I, I was lucky in that I, I didn't go to jail. I, I wasn't placed on a registry. You know, my lawyer was able to arrange something where I agreed to do 100 hours of community service and parenting education. And in turn, they they agreed not to pursue the charges. I mean, but even that, that's, you know, still, it's not nothing. There there was a part of me that was was shocked by it, right, that sort of thought, okay, well, at, at first I thought, you know, maybe they just want to call and follow up and just make sure everything was okay, you know. And once they talk to me or they talk to my lawyer and realize that, you know, I'm a regular person. They'll just say, okay, we just wanted to make sure. But, you know, what I found out in researching for, for the book is that the way it, it did go down for me is actually very common. And that the problem is that once the police are involved in things like that, it's very hard to put the brakes on it. And they're very hesitant, I think, to just say, well, it's probably fine. Like once, I think that people have this sort of false faith in the system and they think like, well, I don't know what's going on. So I'll just call the police and they'll, they'll sort it out or I'll just mm-hmm. call child protective services and they'll sort it out. But what happens is that often they don't sort it out. And once you're sort of in the system, there's going to be pretty severe consequences for you and for your children and your family, regardless of if, if something, if you were really doing something dangerous or not. Did you not feel also in that moment, anger? Like, who is this person who just in this vigilante manner went after me? I did feel some anger. You know, I think I think more than anger, it was a sense of a sense of just disbelief and confusion, you know, because I I felt like I really felt like I didn't understand I didn't understand why it was happening. And 
I remember I kept thinking about like, because I was a fairly anxious person, I, I feel like I'm less anxious in my parenting now than I was then, you know, but because I was fairly anxious and like, I was very uh, vigilant about, you know, knowing what, what risks existed for small children. And I was always cutting up the hot dogs lengthwise and, you know, never take my eyes off them in the bathtub even for a second and those kinds of things, you know, and, and sometimes to the point even where I would be a little bit judgmental to other parents, you know, I would have a friend who was riding their bike with the, with their baby on the back in the city of Chicago. And I would sort of think to myself, like, well, I wouldn't do that. That seems just too dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so it was more, if there was anger, it, was, it wasn't directed like, oh, I want to get this person and how could this happen? It was more just like, I didn't understand why this particular thing I had done was, was seen as so risky and make me deserving of punishment. Whereas other kinds of things that, that people did all the time, like, for example, letting kids swim. I mean, I knew that like drowning was a, uh, is a, is a big danger for children. A lot mm-hmm. of children die and drowning to the point where I remember when my sister moved to Texas, she got a house that had a pool and I was like, we can't come to visit till you put a fence around the pool. You know, it's not safe with a toddler. Like that was the kind of, you know, mother that I was. So there was a sense of like, why was this thing? Why is this thing being criminalized? Right. I mean, it's interesting when you think about that leaving a child in the back seat of a car. As you pointed out, your parents did that when you were growing up. I remember, you know, probably not hours, but, you know, feeling really bored sitting in the back seat of the car. And as a parent myself, often feeling that temptation to leave any number of my kids in, in the back seat of a car. And it was totally unquestioned that that was a perfectly fine thing to do when we were growing up. When did that change? And and the law, I don't think, has changed, right? It's just our concept of what is permissible and not permissible. I mean, if anything's changed, it's in the direction of safety, right? Mm-hmm. That there's, there's less crime than there right. was in the 70s and 80s. I mean, I think what changed is, of course, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but, you know, there's a few things which I go into in the book at greater length. I mean... One was, I think, I think it started in the 70s and 80s. It, it, that's when it began with these really highly publicized child abduction cases, like the uh, abduction and murder of Adam Walsh or Aton Pat. There were these cases and there was sort of this moral panic in the 80s around, that started in the 80s. Right, like latchkey that. children and who's watching the kids. and Who's watching the kids, right? The McMartin preschool panic and a lot of just free-floating anxiety, which of course I think is attached to our deep ambivalence about women entering the workforce and the fact that we haven't created the structures and policies to support them in doing that. So there's this free-floating anxiety around child abduction. And so I think that was the start of it. And then there was much later Jean Weingarten's piece in the Washington Post, Fatal Distraction, where he writes about hot car deaths and sort of how they happen. And I think that's a really important piece of journalism. And he writes about how the parents who are the victims of this are often criminalized and demonized as though they intentionally killed their children when in fact, often it's, it's not that at all. It's that they've just simply forgotten that the child is in the car, you know, and they go to work because of a change in their schedule. So he, so I think that piece brought this, brought hot car deaths into the public consciousness. And then we already had all these feelings of the the sense that there's 
these strangers lurking everywhere who are just waiting for the opportunity to to abduct a child. And those things, I think, greatly inflated our sense of the danger of public spaces for children. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when in fact, what I always go back to in the book is that by far, statistically, the most dangerous thing I did that day was just put my son in the car and drive someplace with him. I mean, 487 kids on average are injured or killed in traffic accidents every day. Whereas I would later learn that I think statistically it would take 750,000 years for a child left alone in a public space to be kidnapped by a stranger. Wow. So the reality hasn't changed, but our perception around what the risks to children are changed. And then what happened is, and I, is that I talk at length to Barbara Sarneka, who's a cognitive scientist at UC Irvine, and she found that risk assessment is also very tied to moral judgment. Mm-hmm. So as soon as there was this, this kind of leap where we suddenly think a child being unsupervised is in danger, then when we see a child unsupervised, we morally, we judge the parents. We think that parent, that's a bad parent, that parent's doing something wrong. And that in turn affects how dangerous we think the thing is. So it sort of forms a negative feedback loop. You mentioned that some of this anxiety around safety and sort of who's watching the children and that there was that campaign on TV, like it's eight o'clock. Do you know where your children are? I think in the in the 80s that a lot of that stems from ambivalence over women entering the workforce and, and probably also related to divorce and more single mothers having to support their child and then not having that child care coverage. One thing I thought was interesting is that in the piece that you wrote for the Sunday Review, you mentioned that this really does transcend class because if it's a wealthy woman, let's say, in her fancy car, leaving her child out there for two minutes while she runs into the spa or the, you know, deluxe, you know, whatever luxury store, wherever it is that she might go, that then she's chastised for like, oh, you selfish, you know, rich mother who doesn't really care about your children. That it's sort of, it doesn't matter, you know, that 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 whether you are African-American or white or working class or rich, that the common factor is that these are all women. Right. And I think that what it comes down to is that as a culture, we're we're very comfortable with women being mothers mm-hmm. and mothering and doing things that are related to their role as mothers. And we're very uncomfortable with them doing anything else still in 2018. You know, I wrote a piece a, a few months ago, just a short piece for InStyle magazine about Kim Kardashian and motherhood and the ways in which she's sort of sexualizing motherhood in an interesting way. And in my research for the piece, I looked at incidents of mom shaming of celebrities and just all the ways that even like celebrity women who have you know, a huge fan base and everyone loves them and would be kind of publicly shamed on social media for things like going out to dinner when they had a two month old, you know, what, why are you going out to dinner? Why aren't you with your baby? Or, you know, the way they dressed their children, the way they hugged their children, whether they were nursing their children or not nursing her. I mean, just like all kinds of things. I just think it's very hard in our culture still to be a mother and to be anything else, to be a full person. And that when women 
try to do that or are even seen as trying to do that, there's often a lot of backlash and a lot of judgment. And yet it it is often women who are doing the judging of other women. Right. Of course. Right. Because that's how patriarchy works. Right. It's not just men imposing these standards on us. Like we impose them on each other. Mm-hmm. We we enforce them on each other. I mean, I was just talking about this with a friend because he was talking about how he's Swedish and he was talking about how in Sweden, a lot of men, even though they're offered paternity leave, won't take it. When the women almost always want to take it and they don't, you know, a lot of the women he knew didn't want to go back to work. And I was like, yeah, you know, and he was sort of saying, well, is that an example that this is really just women? And and I said, well, and yesterday, like, I chose to put on a pair of high heels that hurt my back, you know, instead of my comfortable shoes because I um, was socialized in a patriarchy, right? Like, of course, women have internalized a lot of these notions. And we are the ones that have a lot of the anxiety about meeting these sort of impossible standards. What happens when the dad takes the four-year-old along to go to the dry cleaner to pick up the dry cleaning, you know, to pick it up for mom? <laughs> and he leaves the child in the car for a couple of minutes. It's hard to generalize. I'm sure that what happened to me, I'm sure that it has similar things have happened to some men. The one case I write about in the book where actually the husband of a woman who got in trouble for this had done something similar like the year before. The example I give is the police did come and they saw him there and they kind of just said, oh, you didn't know, you know, but you really shouldn't do that. I know how it is. You know, just don't do it again. My suspicion is that that happens a lot, you know, that we still, when we, when we see a man doing any, any child care, that the, the instinct is, well, isn't that amazing that he's even with the kids? And right. so that there's more of a, more of a tendency to sort of cut him some slack. And then I also think just that, you know, the reality is that women in this country still do the majority of the childcare of the schlepping kids around. And so anything that, that impacts people doing childcare is going to disproportionately impact women. One last question. Were you afraid to write this book? This is probably, presumably, one of the most shaming, difficult things you've gone through as a parent. Were you afraid to write about this and to sort of expose this whole circumstance in your own life and in the life of your family? I was a little bit afraid, especially at the beginning when I wrote the original essay for Salon a number of years ago. You know, and I was afraid because I. I didn't know how it would impact my family and my kids, you know, would people like not want to let their kids play with my kids at our house or things like that. Ultimately, I I wrote the essay because I'm a writer and because, you know, this is sort of how I process my experiences and investigate things and try to figure out to make sense of, of my experiences. I wasn't that afraid in writing the book because after I started writing about this, after I wrote the essay, So many other women came to me and told me that similar things had happened to them Mm -hmm. or that they'd had similar anxieties or that they had felt judged or shamed in the same way. And at that point, I really felt like there was something going on here that was bigger than me and my experience, that my experience wasn't just a fluke and that I felt sort of a responsibility to be open about what happened to me and hopefully encourage other women to not stay silent because of you know, the stigma that surrounds these things. 
Well, there was a huge response to the piece that ran in the Sunday Review among readers to the essay adapted from the book. So I imagine many readers will be interested in reading this book. The title is Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. And I'll also mention Kim has written a novel, The House Guest, critically acclaimed, which came out in 2016. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Lauren Christensen, Ramon Alam, and Gal Beckerman. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Let's start with you, Gal. What are you reading? I am reading The Mirage Factory by Gary Christ. He's written a number of books that are all kind of, you know, histories of he's he's written novels too, but this is a nonfiction book, a history. He's um, really prolific, actually. He is, I feel like yeah. there's a book a year with him. And he he kind of made this switch a few years ago to writing these sort of narrative nonfiction books that are focused on the history of cities. And this one's about Los Angeles, where I'm from. So it's particularly fascinating. And it covers kind of the years from like the 1910s until 1930. And really tells the story of how kind of Los Angeles gained the character that it has. And he does it by doing kind of a triple biography of William Mulholland, who's the guy who kind of brought water to Los Angeles because it wasn't foreordained that Los Angeles would become the big city that it was until somebody figured out how to get water there because it's basically in the desert. Is this Mulholland Drive Mulholland? Yeah, they okay. named after him. And D.W. Griffith, who's probably the best known of the three, Birth of a Nation was filmed in Los Angeles and kind of became the first blockbuster film. Had all kinds of other problems right. with it, <laughs> but that, but it, but it actually kind of created the industry in many ways. And then a, a woman who was totally unknown to me, Amy Semple McPherson, who was this big Christian evangelist who built this enormous kind of proto mega church in Los Angeles and became like kind of a tabloid figure and had like this huge following and a radio show. And she kind of represents like the crazy in Los Angeles, <laughs> like the in the nineteen kind of, that was in the nineteen thirties, twenties, yeah, twenties. Yeah. Oh. The subtitle of the book is "Illusion, Imagination, and the Invention of Los Angeles." Right, so right. I, I, I guess that's the framework that you. Yeah. So in those things, twenty years, he he says, you know, between the kind of the water, kind of the infrastructure of Los Angeles, the movies, which became the big industry, and also this kind of search for you know various forms of alternative meaning, you know, that she kind of represents spirituality and such. The kind of Los Angeles has become associated with, all those things kind of took shape. And a city that was really, you know, was not destined necessarily to be the kind of mega city that it became really took took form. And as a Los Angelino, yeah. and Ramon, you are also from... No, I'm from the East Coast. You're from the yeah. East Coast. I just have that Los Angeles sophistication. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, I can see why you'd be confused. Well, you have that, like, <laughs> yes, that bi-coastal <laughs> error to you. Okay. It's like kale salad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Gal, as, as a real Los Angelino, yeah. do you feel like that you're, that there are aspects from this book that you can kind of detect in the LA that you know today? Like, is any of this visible, what you're reading about in the current city? I mean, I think the the kind of outsized presence of the film industry is really interesting to see kind of where it came from and how it installed itself there. What was interesting to me is that like, to me, Los Angeles is such a diverse city with so many different kinds of communities and, and it really is this kind of huge hodgepodge. But the Los Angeles he describes in the 20s was not at all like that. It was like kind of white Midwesterners, you know, coming to find this kind of Mediterranean type of vibe and and not, you know, and trying to create a, a sort of a different sort of community, but very 
kind of exclusive and and not at all what you would associate with Los Angeles today. And that really changed over over the course of this over the course of this particular moment in history too. Now I want to go to Los Angeles. <laughs> you just got back from California. I recently. did just get back from California, but yes. And what did big, you read while state. you were there? Um the two books I was going to talk about are um a novel by the Danish writer Dorothy Noors. I'm not sure how you say her la- her name. It's uh, N-O-R-S is her last name, called Mirror Shoulder Signal, which Parle reviewed, but I didn't read the review because I didn't I never want anyone's judgment to color my experience of the book. But it's a beautiful book about a woman who is learning to drive. And the emotional center of the book is her fretting over her relationship with her sister. Mm-hmm. And there was something really interesting to me about a sibling relationship being sort of the primary focus of Mm -hmm. a text as opposed to a romantic relationship. And it's really, it's a really lovely book. And Dorothy Norris writes, uh, she wrote a book called Karate Chop of these very short stories. And she has a very precise way of writing. But of course, it's rendered in translation. So I don't really, you know, it's hard to say. And in this... It's translated from... It's translated from the Danish. Mm -hmm. And in this text, the protagonist is herself a translator who works translating these sort of gruesome uh, crime novels into Danish, I think rendering them from Swedish into Danish. So there's a lot of play there, I think, with language and precision. and But the translation is really beautifully done, and it's a really lovely and very odd little book that I recommend highly. And the other book I was going to talk about is a book called Difficult Women by David Plant. And it is a pretty atrocious book. It's a it's a reissue of a book. I think he published it in the 80s. And it's a biography of three different women of Jean Reese, uh, Sonia Orwell, who was George mm-hmm. Orwell's widow, and Germaine Greer, mm-hmm. the Australian thinker. Was Roxanne Gay's alive. title a reference? Is that a doc? I, I, I don't know, actually. That's actually a really good question. And I don't have an answer to it. But whereas Roxanne Gay's project is to sort of like claim that as a source of pride, David Plant's book is like a deeply misogynist and angry and very personal attack on these three women. Oh, it's literal. Yeah. Oh, it's quite, it's quite literal. (laughs) Um, And he, he had these sort of relationships with uh, Jean Reese, who was quite old and of course a horrible, horrible alcoholic. And um, he just portrays her really, uh, it's, it's pretty cruel, but it ends up being sort of a window more into his psychology than into these women's psychology. And you sort of Mm. can't believe somebody would write a book like this about (laughs) women who are ostensibly his friends. Did you pick it up knowing this is what it was, knowing you would hate it? I didn't pick it up. Yeah, I think it's I guess kind of I knew. infamously cruel, right? right? Yes, like, it's, it's, it's it like has known it, as exactly. this book that, with a reputation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I guess so I was curious about how cruel it really was. And then I was shocked to discover that right, it is, in right. fact, quite cruel. So it is funny when you, when all you remember about something before going in is that it's incredibly controversial, but you right. don't necessarily <laughs> no, remember what right. the controversy is. I'm, I'm watching a movie that as I exercise in, in little installments, such as something about the state of how often, how short I exercise. But I knew it was controversial. The Night Porter, do you know this film no. with um, Charlotte Rampling? Incredibly controversial film from I think 1972 or 73. Oh, I think I remember. Yeah, and I think yeah. I remember why it was. Is this with Donald Sutherland? No, no, no. Oh. Scathing reviews at the time from Vincent Canby, among others, as just this sort of like sadomasochistic Nazi porn. And it's you know basically about a young Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp portrayed very beautifully um, physically (laughs) by Charlotte Rampling, who is essentially raped and brutalized by a Nazi guard. But 
it's a love story. So um, anyway, you can see why. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, <laughs> Say no more. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. But it is true that there are certain controversies. Like sometimes, sometimes the controversy does not last as long as the text. And sometimes you go back to it and you're like, well, this deserved to be controversial. And I think with difficult right. women reading it, I was like, I'm, I'm glad that I read it. And um, it definitely affirmed that the controversy is a well-founded. Can I borrow and, it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what are you reading, Lauren? So I'm reading something that I think a lot of people ha- either have read already or are also reading Bad Blood by John Carreyou about uh, the Theranos story. And, you know, I picked it up because I've long been pretty insecure about my kind of mental block for business books. Um, <laughs> I really try time and again to pick it up. And, you know, all my friends recommend Shoe Dog and things like that. And I just, I, it's, it's not them, it's me. I just, I can't really get into these books. And I felt that way uh, about Walter Isaacson's Steve Jobs biography. I finished it, but I skipped over all the parts that were really just in the weeds with like technological speak that I had no interest for, but I was really carried along by obviously the psychological portrait of an individual. With this book, I picked it up and was stunned by how quickly I moved through the first 150 mm. pages. And I really couldn't put it down. I, I couldn't believe that there was a person like this who, you know, founded a company at 19 years old from her dorm room at Stanford and had just this unbelievable amount of hubris to think that she was going to just, you know, revolutionize healthcare at, at, essentially the age of a child. Um, and it's, it's amazing what she was able to amass, but, you know, obviously it was sort of built on quicksand. Uh, you know, I, I won't give it away, although I think everyone really knows what <laughs> happened. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of ability to just knowingly scam um, not just investors out of billions of dollars, but sick people who actually really rely on these medical testing was was just kind of unbelievable to me. That said, I think I got, I'm, I'm starting, I haven't finished it. I'm a little, I'm about halfway through and I'm starting to feel frustrated because I don't feel necessarily like I'm ever going to get inside her head Mm -hmm. the way that I think at least Isaacson maybe made more of an effort to really speak to Steve Jobs in a way that I I felt like I, I didn't necessarily sympathize, but you know, you get inside of his head as opposed to just sort of looking at Elizabeth Holmes, the, the CEO of um, Theranos and just from the outside and kind of gaping agog at her, you know, unbelievable sort of treachery. But did he I, not I interview I'd, her? If he does, I haven't gotten to that part. I know the second part sort of talks more about his involvement in the case, but I think, you know, halfway through, I would like to have a little bit more of a sense of investment in the character, even right. if it's not true sympathy. And, you know, everyone sort of said it read like a novel, which is why I was like, okay, I, I can do this one. <laughs> but I'm I'm lagging a little bit. Can anyone? But he is because <laughs> Carrie is a he's a he's a reporter, yes, right? So the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal, Journal. Yeah. So I think the the approach is very much a kind of mm-hmm. a reporter's approach, and he right. broke this story yes. of, of the scandal. Yeah. So there's definitely this sense that you know he's approaching it in that way. I know, will finish yeah. it. I mean. Yeah. Also, I think that there's no satisfying conclusion to the question of who Elizabeth Holmes is because I think it's sort of like yes. an open yes. question. And right. I mean, I would love to read that book too, yeah. but I feel like that is probably like 30 years away. Yeah. You know? And I love that she walks around wearing the black turtleneck. Turtle yeah. yeah. As if it wasn't so a dead giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a little sad. I mean, um, but, and, it, and the ultimate like cautionary tale about Silicon Valley yeah, and kind of all the, 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 what we infuse it with in terms of our hopes and, and dreams right. of solving every problem in right. the yeah, world. Los Angeles isn't the only part of California that's an illusion, right? Yeah. 
Pamela, it's your turn to tell us what you're reading. I'm finally beginning to fulfill my summer reading resolution, which is pretty much the same resolution I have every summer, which is to just spend the entire season reading thrillers. And I never end up doing it. But I'm now that it's end of summer, finally getting in my first juicy thriller. It's called Something in the Water by Catherine Stedman, who, according to her biography, is an actress and writer based in the UK and is best known here for her role as Mabel Lane Fox in Downton Abbey. I've actually not seen Downton Abbey. Has anyone? Oh, I find that so surprising, Pamela. You haven't seen Downton Abbey? I have not seen. It's it's a wonderful guilty pleasure, but I don't remember who (laughs) Mabel Lane Fox was. No, I'm TV illiterate. And I'm also really a baby reader when it comes to thrillers because I don't read enough of them to like be inured to the mm-hmm. mechanics. Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't recognize all of the signals. I mean, with a bad thriller, I definitely start to see the mechanics of of what they're doing. And there's certain, you know, things that have become very cliched, like the unreliable narrator. But for the most part, I'm sort of constantly shocked and surprised and delighted, as you're supposed to be when you read a thriller. This one, I think, was reviewed for us by Sarah Lyle. And she, along with Janet Maslin and Tina Jordan, who read a lot of these thrillers, I kind of rely on them to let me know. And this also has the imprimatur of Reese Witherspoon. It is one of her book club selections. And it certainly starts off cinematically. So you begin in a nighttime secret graveyard digging burial where this woman is burying. We quickly find out. No, there's no plot spoilers here. It's the first chapter. She's burying her husband, and it's shortly after their anniversary. Mm. Uh, and then, mm. of course, the quick flash back to an earlier anniversary. So it's one of those, you know, again, I I can recognize certain basic things like we're starting with the crime and now we're going to go scroll back and figure out how we got here. But it's it's well written and I'm heading off on vacation. So I feel like it's perfect. What what more could you want for the end of the summer? That's right. It's all end of the summer reading here at the book review. All right. Lauren, Ramon, Gall, thanks so much. Thank Thank you. you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.